You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Last year, the Seattle Times did an article about the fans of Seattle, and a professor was quoted as saying this, Our research has shown that the number one reason people become fans is that it's your first connection to community. Think about that for a second. It's your first connection to community. What that means is it may not be that we are so interested in moving a piece of leather, however it's inflated, 100 yards across a lawn. (laughs) We might be more motivated by that great feeling you get when you're wearing a 12 and you're walking down the street in Seattle and a total stranger gives you a high five or a fist pump, right? And all of a sudden it's like... We're connected. All of a sudden, it feels like I'm part of a community. I mean, if that's the case, then I I just wonder if the the roar that comes out of CenturyLink uh, field that shakes the earth under our feet isn't more the cry of a city that is desperate for community, authentic community. Well, that's what we're talking about this morning, because I'm going to introduce you to a woman named Lydia. From the pages of the New Testament, we meet a woman named Lydia who makes a place in her life for people and a place for people in her life. And she discovers the power of connection and community. Would you open your Bible to Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15, and then verse 40? If you're looking at the Pew Bible, you find this on page 900 and then 901. We're going to read the beginning of the story and then jump ahead to the end of the story. We'll be jumping over the story of a Uh, a girl who is freed from a spirit of divination. And then we'll be jumping over the famous story of an earthquake in Philippi where Paul and Silas are um, released and meet a Philippian jailer. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read this text, Acts 16, verses 11 through 15 aloud. And then we'll jump down to verse 40 and read the conclusion of the chapter aloud. And When we're done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. This is Lydia. She only gets six verses in the whole Bible. But what a picture of a follower of Jesus Christ. Lydia is an open-hearted follower of Jesus. She opens her heart to Jesus, and then she opens her home, 
her life to others. We're coming to Lydia because we're talking about what it means to multiply uh, disciples. And what are the multipliers that we can engage in that Jesus uses to make disciples? We talked at the beginning of the series about find. Find. That was the first multiplier. Find the people in your life that God already has. And the next is to share. That's another multiplier. Share your story. And then last week, encourage. The advocacy of Jesus embodied in our lives when we encourage people around us. Another multiplier. This week, the multiplier comes with this one simple verb, open. Acts 16 is, in fact, the story of a house. Now, I know it's also the story of how the good news first comes from Asia into Europe. I know it's also the story of the founding of the church in Philippi, the first European church. I know it's also the story of Lydia, one of the great women leaders of the early church. But the way Luke, who's likely the author here, tells the story, he wants us to see it's really the story of a house. Did you notice that the founding of the church in Philippi begins in a house, Lydia's house, and there it ends in a house? Oh my gosh, we didn't read verse 40, did we? I told, okay, pull that book back out. I'm sorry, look at that. I did that in the last service as well. You'd think I would have learned. This one's on page 901. But this is perfect because what's happened is the the, the slave girl has been healed. Paul and Silas have been released from prison. And now they come back and look where they come. Verse 40, let's read together. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home. And when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters, there they departed. Okay, that's it. So, begins and ends with a home. This is a story of a house. Now, when I think of a house, I think of love. I think about a roof and security. Last month, a cousin of mine received an email with nothing but photos, two photos, Both of the photos showed our grandfather's house in Maine, and it was being demolished. And she she burst into tears. And then she began to write. She's a blogger. She, She wrote a beautiful piece with just recollections of the simple places and the profound memories that we hold in that house. And these were my memories as well. She talked about the bang that the screen door would make. She talked about the fake brick linoleum floors that ran through the house. She, she talked about the shotguns that leaned against the windows in the, uh, um, in the, in the corner for squirrels. Uh, she, she talked about the Italian sandwiches that were eaten at lunch and the card games that were played and the trash talk and the smell of codfish cakes on a Saturday morning. All these memories. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, you know, they can take the roof apart, but... And they can do what they want to the walls of that place, but they cannot touch the love that made that house a home. That love lives on in so many lives to this day. Now, the Greek word for house in the Bible is oikos. I know it sounds like a yogurt brand, but it it really means house, oikos. But it means more than house. Because in both the Old and the New Testaments, the language, languages do not have a specific word for family like we do. And so they use the word house for family. So sometimes the word oikos refers to a structure. And when it does, it refers to a building under a roof. 
where there's security and protection and refuge and identity. But at other times it refers to the people who would live under that roof. The, the, the family that's there is also referred to as an oikos. And when that word is used of a group of people, then there also it signifies the same thing. Security, protection, refuge, identity. And God wants all people to be in a family that's like that, whether it's their natural family or some other collection of peoples. But that's what an oikos is. When I think of a house, I think of love. I think about a door or, or inviting. Here in this text, Luke portrays a house as a mission strategy with a door that opens, inviting people into God's love. It's a strategy that multiplies Lydia's life. At the beginning, there's one woman in a house. At the end, as you read, it says, we encourage the brothers and the sisters. Now, this is the kind of language that the New Testament writers would have used of a church. So no longer is it just Lydia in this house. Now the brothers and the sisters are there. Now, apparently, Philippi as a whole city has found a place of worship. Now, now the community is gathering together and experiencing authentic connection with one another and with Jesus Christ in her house. Now that's quite an outcome for one person. And the house and her willingness to open the house seems to be the multiplier. One of the things I love about this text is the contrast between the slave girl who has the spirit of divination and Lydia who simply opens a house. I think they're two missionary strategies and sometimes I fear that Jesus might be calling me to the strategy embodied in the slave girl. Now we didn't read this story but here's how it goes. Paul and Silas are walking after they met Lydia. They're walking through the cities over a period of several days and day after day the slave girl follows them around and she's got an open mouth and she says... These men are slaves of the Most High. They've come to show you a way of salvation. And Paul, being a relatively gracious person, puts up with this for a few days. But eventually, Luke says, he was very annoyed. And he turns around, and I love this, not so much out of compassion for her, but out of just absolute exasperation, he heals her of the Spirit. And she's better. Now, why does Paul do that? Because he's saying, in essence, this is not our strategy. My fear is that Jesus would have me go into Seattle with a big mouth and say, I'm a servant of the Most High, pray, proclaim to you a way of salvation. And Paul says, this is not our strategy. This is not the way we do what God is calling us to do here. Actually, our strategy is not the slave girl's strategy. It's Lydia's strategy. It's the woman in the house. It's not the open mouth. It's the open door. You see, what we're doing is we're working very discreetly, lovingly through a social network of people and helping them to see their love by God in Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we think of Lydia as too ordinary. We think of her just as a woman who's good with doilies and tea. She's just a hostess. Sometimes I think we think she's too extraordinary. Look at how God used her. But the point is here that our ordinary acts, simple ordinary acts of opening to other people, have an extraordinary impact as the Holy Spirit uses them. When I think of a house, I think of love. I think of a table where things are shared Let's think a little bit about the structure of Lydia's house. Uh, first, physical structure. And then secondly, the relational structure. In both senses, I would say her house is open. 
the physical structure. We have to use our imagination a little bit. But here's what we know. It's a big house. She's a woman of means who can accommodate guests uh, fairly easily. It's also a Roman house. It tells us something about the architecture. Um, Philippi is a Roman colony. Lucas told you that. It was actually founded as a colony by uh, Octavian and Mark Anthony after they defeated Brutus and Cassius, who were the, remember, the assassins of Julius Caesar? Then to celebrate, Octavian and Mark Anthony uh, gave land grants to their soldiers in Philippi, their vets, and they said, here, you can have this city, and we'll make it just like a little Rome in Greece. It was under Roman law in the same way Rome does, and it had a culture that was like Rome. So we can imagine it was a very Roman house. And we get examples of that from better excavated sites in Pompeii and in Ephesus. It was probably an open structure, an atrium house that was built around an open courtyard in the middle. You can imagine generous rooms for entertainment, for eating, for reception, for business, for storage, for sleeping, all around an open courtyard. But just as Lydia's house was physically open... The house that was the people, her oikos, is relationally open. Let me take a moment to describe that. Three words, non-traditional, diverse, and dynamic. It was non-traditional because, after all, who's the household uh, master? It's a woman. Don't miss that. It's a leader in the early church. She's the head of the household. She has the authority in this house. She has to ask no man for permission in order to invite these strange guests. She's the head. So she's probably, she's single, she's divorced, or she's widowed. We don't know. But she's the head of that. It's non-traditional. Secondly, it's diverse, ethnically diverse. She herself comes from Asia Minor. She's an Asian, uh, and uh, yet she's in Greece, so there are Asians in her uh, family. There are uh, Greeks in this extended family. Uh, There are probably Romans or Latins who are there, and she's opening up now to Jews. So it's ethnically diverse. But also, the biblical concept of oikos is extended family, and it doesn't just talk about relationship by blood. So there would be that. There would be maybe she has some children, some cousins, uh, blood relatives, but also extended family and then um, employees of her business and uh, guards and um, people who did housekeeping and all kinds of all kinds of different roles in that, including maybe some of the poor of Philippi that she might have taken on as patrons. They're all part of her family, her oikos, her house. It's diverse. And then, thirdly, it's dynamic. Um, what we know about Lydia is that she trades in purple dye, and the, the purple dye that's most famous in the Roman Empire comes from her hometown, Thyatira, which is in modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor. Uh, there, the juice of the madder root was refined. It's a rich, rich purple. And she's bringing that now to a market that loves, craves purple, because this is a little Roman colony, and the purple is the color of what? The emperor. This is the royalty, right? So all the elites in Philippi and and beyond, and the wannabes, all want purple. They want a a stitch of purple thread in in their garments or a purple border on their togas. And so she's got a great business, and she has connections, that allows her to do this trade. It's very dynamic. One historian says, as a business person, she would be constantly negotiating social contracts. So she's got a great Rolodex, a great contact book. Imagine the people that she knows. 
It's a dynamic oikos. It's a, we call it a social network that she has. When I think of a house, I think of love. I think about a bedroom, a place to crash and find rest and renewal. I got a letter this week from one of you about a bedroom, and I thank you for permission to read it. This woman wrote a letter not to me. She wrote it to her friends, people in her life who helped her become who she is today, and she just copied me on it. This is what she writes. She says, on the second Sunday of January, I celebrated my 40th born-again birthday. Jesus, through his spirit, touched my life with eternity that day and every day since. And you, her friends, are one of the people who played a very precious part of my journey to falling in love with Jesus. In 1974, I was a mess, brought up in the Eastern proper world where etiquette, pedigree, money, and the college you attended were the formula to the good life. I bought into it. Also, I didn't have a mother, so I lacked modeling and mentoring for being a mother and the wife of a struggling young lawyer. Along with this, something I had relied on was lying, because one always has to look good, no matter what. We just moved to the West Coast, and I felt very alone and very lost. It's a kind of a long letter, and then she starts to, one by one, talk about the people who opened their lives to her so she could sense Jesus' love. She didn't quite understand what it all meant until one day somebody asked her a question. And the question was, do you remember when you first fell in love with Jesus? Those words struck the core of my being, she writes. At first I said to myself, I have fallen in love with my husband, but falling in love with Jesus. But then I got it. It is Jesus. All of these smiles, the beautiful faces, the love and the kindness in these people... And it all comes because of Jesus. They have fallen in love with Jesus. A day or so later, I got on my knees at home in our sun-filled bedroom and prayed, Jesus, I have these particular problems and I give them to you. Well, on second thought, I will give them all to you. I know it's a mess, but I give you my whole life. And then finally, at the end of the letter, she names these friends again and thanks each one. And she says this, He has blessed me beyond measure way beyond anything I could have imagined. With his amazing grace and faithfulness, with his forgiveness, and she puts in parentheses, I gave up lying with a lot of other sinfulness, and his love. Jesus' love has taken hold of my life, and for 40 years that spirit of love, started by you, has helped me become who I am today, and God isn't finished with me yet. When I think of a house... I think of love. I think about a living room, a place for gatherings. Rodney Stark, who was a professor of sociology at University of Washington for several years, wrote a great book called The Rise of Christianity, in which he convincingly argues that the exponential growth of the early church in the first three centuries of its history does not come from large meetings or grand edicts, it comes from social networks, small gatherings, house by house, living rooms. We shouldn't be surprised by this because this is the model, actually, that Jesus gives his disciples in Luke chapter 10. Remember, Luke writes both the gospel and, we believe, the book of Acts. And so he gives us an account of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 giving the missionary strategy, which involves houses. 
Jesus, remember, sends out the 70 disciples, and he says to them, um, don't have to do with people on the road. Don't have a big mouth strategy on this, in the streets of the city, but rather find what he calls a person of peace, a person in whom I am already at work, who will open their home to you and invite you in. And when they do, you go in. Open yourself to their hospitality. Speak a word of peace on that house. Stay with them. Become a part of their oikos, one of their people, so that my love will begin to change the culture of that family. And then, in time, you and others from that house will go out looking for another person of peace and accept their invitation into a new oikos, house by house. Now, Luke is telling us how this happened in the book of Acts. And we see in Acts chapter 5 that Jerusalem is changed by the gospel house by house. We see in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, he's a person of peace. He invites Peter into his house, and Peter shares the good news of Jesus there. And then when we get to Acts 16, some of you know the story. We didn't read this part, but there's a, a dream that Paul has. And in it, a Macedonian man says to Paul, come over and help us. And if you wonder, who's us? It's just one guy there in the dream. It's his household. That man is a person of peace inviting Paul. He says, this is a strategy that Paul's looking for. Ah, there's a person of peace. He gets on a boat and he goes across to Macedonia. And then he meets Who? Lydia, another person of peace who compels them to come into their home. She won't take no for an answer. They stay with her and use her house as a base of operation. And they begin to work through her social network. In, and then, who's the next person of peace? It's the Philippian jailer. The earthquake happens. He's overwhelmed by the power and love of God and the grace of God in his life. And he invites then Paul and Silas into his oikos as well. So this is the pattern. Now, this is, I want to suggest, a model for us here at UPC. It might seem strange, but we're studying this model. I want you to know your elders are studying this model uh, right now. It's nice to know what an elder does, right? Well, they're actually reading a book together, and I would invite you to join us in reading this book. It's, it's about houses as a missionary strategy. It's called Leading Missional Communities by Michael Breen, a Brit. We're a very biblical church. We aspire to be a thoroughly biblical church here at University Presbyterian Church. And so we need a biblical model for ministry and for mission. And we believe that this is the model. So we're looking at it together. And there are several pilot programs that are happening now around the city. And if you'd like to participate, we'd love to include you. When I think of a house, I think of love. I think about a, a fireplace and warmth. And I think the warmth of Lydia's life is the grace of Jesus. As Paul is sharing his story of Jesus with her in verse 14, the theological insight is given to us by Luke. Paul just talks, but Jesus, the Lord, opens her heart. You see that in verse 14? The Lord opens her heart. And I think it takes the Lord to open your heart to grace I think it takes the Holy Spirit to convince us that God really does love us, that God really has forgiven us, that we're a daughter or a son of God. And the Lord does that. He opens her heart. And I think about how many homes Jesus, during his earthly ministry, visited and brought a word of grace and open hearts. Remember the paralytic who's lowered through the roof and Jesus heals him and he forgives him. Remember Simon's house, the Pharisee, and then there's a woman who's, quote, a sinner in the city, and Jesus lets her touch him. He knows that she knows that he loves her and he forgives 
her. And then there's another man, Zacchaeus, you know, who in the tree. And Jesus says, I'm coming to your house for lunch, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus invites Jesus in. And there's such a grace for this corrupt tax collector that spontaneous generosity bursts forth. He says, I'm going to start caring for the poor now. That's what grace will do. And so Jesus says, I want you to let me abide in you. I'm knocking on the door of your house. Will you let me abide in you? And when we do, this is the multiplier. He opens our hearts and we open our lives to others. When I think about a house, I think about love. I think about a porch. I think about being open to others. A friend of mine's uh, brother is an architect and he said to me recently, George, have you noticed how buildings have changed? If you drive around an old neighborhood, you typically find houses that are right next to the street along a sidewalk and there's a porch. There's a front porch open to the world. You could sit and rock on the porch and you could just talk to your neighbors as they walk by. If there's a living room, it's on the front of the house. Open. But now, come around some of our new neighborhoods and you see the way we're building houses today, oftentimes set back from a street that doesn't even have a sidewalk. If there's a porch, it's ornamental. The living room, we call it the great room now, is on the back of the house. And all you really see, if you can look behind a fence or shrubbery, is the opening of a garage. He says, George, on my street, I live in a cul-de-sac. There are 11 houses, so I have 10 neighbors. And I've lived there several years. I only know the name of one of those families. Oh, my gosh. Because what do we do? Uh, we come home from work, and we press that little thing, and the door opens, and we go inside, and we press the little thing again before we even have to open our car door, and it closes, closed. All of this makes me wonder, how open am I? How open am I to other people? What do I have that I can open? My time, my money, my apartment, my relationships, my interest, my listening, my empathy. If you want to know what it means to be an open person, think about the social networks in your life. Think about your oikos. And here are two ways to think about it. One, this today, I would encourage you to write down a list of your five closest friends. And then ask yourself, how did I meet those friends? That'll tell you about the networks, you know, school, family, spouse. That's your natural oikos. And then I want you to think about your new oikos as a follower of Jesus Christ. Think about the people who help you open to Jesus and who join you in helping uh, you open to others who don't yet know Jesus. I hope your small group falls on that list there as well. If it doesn't, let us help you find one. And then finally, when I think about a house, I think of love. I think about a walkway. I think about an, a pathway to the world. Recently, a friend of mine heard the doorbell ring, and he opened the door, and he saw a teenager on his path. It was Big J. Big J is a football player. and After a little bit of pleasantry on the threshold, Big J moved past my friend upstairs into my friend's daughter's bedroom, who was at home at the time, but my friend could hear Big J rifling through her desk, looking, he found out later, for art supplies, because he needed some for his project. My friend thought to himself, I'm glad Big J feels so at home in our house. And he was. They actually keep extra food in their refrigerator, food for the neighborhood kids, friends of their kids. But they have one rule, and that is if you eat with us, you pray with us. Isn't that interesting? This family, every night from 9.30 to 10, they pray together. And if you ate with that family during that day, you were expected to come back and pray with them at 9.30. 
And my friend says, interesting, I think these kids really enjoy that prayer time. If only for the reason that they know that there's someone other than their parents who cares for them. And so at 10 o'clock that night, when Big J heads back down that path, he carries that love into the world. Well, 11 years after this meeting with Lydia, the Apostle Paul would write a letter from Rome to the church in Philippi called Philippians. And in AD 61, he would close that letter with these words. All the saints greet you, especially those of the emperor's household, of the emperor's oikos. This is revolutionary stuff now, because Paul is saying... You know the people who are in the Caesar's house? They want to say hi. And they're now followers of Jesus. And it seems to me that it's likely that the members of Caesar's house know some of the members of Lydia's house, or else why would they say hi? And it seems to me, therefore, that Paul has been working Lydia's social network not just in Philippi, but all the way to Rome. And I can just imagine Paul getting arrested and saying, hey, are any of Lydia's people here? Because remember, the purple um, dye at this point, the best dye, is part of a, a monopoly run by the imperial forces. And so, in fact, Lydia does network with people who have business and trade with the Caesar's house. So, if the number 12 were the number of a true disciple, we all have our suspicions, and Jesus did have 12 disciples, then we might say that Jesus put a 12 on Lydia's door. And, because she opened it, he put a 12 on the most guarded door in the whole of the Roman Empire, the door of Nero himself. Wow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for Lydia. And we thank you for the encouragement this morning that small, ordinary acts of openness in our lives to the people that you put in our lives can be used by your Holy Spirit to open their hearts to Jesus. We just pray that you'll make us aware of what those actions might be and what you've given us this day to open to others. And then we pray that you'll empower us for the beauty of Lydia's ministry in our own city today. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.